0: I'm David Kasher, a rabbi at IKAR in Los Angeles, and together we're gonna study the weekly Torah portion of the Parsha and figure out why the Torah really is the best book ever. Let's talk about sin. Let's talk about the sins of our leaders and the sins of our people the sins of the priest, and the sins of the congregation. But mostly, let's talk about your sins, and mine. Go ahead, you go first. Tell me what you've done. I'm waiting. No? Okay, okay, I, I know. Uh, who wants to talk about this, really? Uh, sins are dirty and shameful, right? Or actually, maybe you don't really believe in sins anyway. And even if you did, aren't aren't they your own private business? Well. The book of Leviticus doesn't think so. The book of Leviticus, which we begin reading this week, loves talking about sins, all kinds of sins. Leviticus wants us to reflect on our sins, to confess them and then to do something to atone for them. And that's where the offerings come in. there's a whole intricate system of temple sacrifices called korbanot, the careful detailing of which takes up much of the book of Leviticus. For most people, these gory details make for slow, unpleasant reading and render Leviticus their least favorite book in the Torah. So we forget that underlying the sacrificial system are all of these basic human concerns, like expressing gratitude and praise for health and prosperity, and expressing guilt and confessing sin. Sin, in fact, is perhaps the main reason for bringing an offering to the temple. But while Leviticus mentions these things and offers a kind of solution, it doesn't really spend much time talking about the meaning of sin and the inner experience of the sinner. For that, we have to turn to our trusty commentators. In fact, Leviticus is maybe the book of the Torah that is most begging to be read with commentary. Whether you go to the midrashic medieval or or modern commentators, you'll find that this most challenging of biblical books receives some of the richest treatment of all. In fact, it seems to be precisely because Leviticus is such difficult technical reading that the commentaries are often especially inventive in response, full of all kinds of extra narrative theology and symbolism. So it's a good week to highlight the extraordinary writings of Rabbi Shlomo Ephraim Lunshitz, once the chief rabbi of Prague, and his commentary, the Kliakar, literally the precious vessel. The tradition of biblical commentary, Parshanut, is a genre filled with riches, but everybody's allowed a favorite, and I, I have to say, the Kliakar is mine. We've looked at some of his pieces before on this podcast, and they have so much to offer, I just can't say enough about his commentary. He asks great questions. He summons the whole of the rabbinic tradition with ease. He summarizes medieval opinions. He cites the wisdom of his own teachers. He's interested in mysticism and philosophy and language. But perhaps most compelling of all, and especially useful in the context of Leviticus, are his penetrating psychological insights. The Kliakar is writing into the beginning of the 17th century just before the Hasidic revolution and before the eventual Freudian revolution. In other words, just before the emergence of what we call modernity and the modern conception of the self. And I have the sense that the Kliakar is just beginning to lay the groundwork for the kind of inward reflection that will become a defining feature of the modern age. And so when it comes to sin, the psychological theme that he picks up and returns to again and again is motivation. What we do are actions that everyone can see. And it's the explicit action of sin that Leviticus is concerned with. But why do we sin? What's driving us? Our motives are less clear. Motives are almost by definition hidden inside of us. So the Kleokar takes us on a journey inside the consciousness of the sinner, and we quickly discover, that is a quite a complicated place to be. So what motivates a person to sin to begin with? Kleokar wrestles with this question throughout this week's Parsha, but let's take one example. He begins very much in the classical style here, starting with a linguistic question. Sometimes when Leviticus mentions sin, it starts with the phrase, when a person sins, nefesh ki techetah, but other instances begin slightly differently. If a person sins, ve'im nefesh achat techatah. So which is it? If or when? Okay, you might think, well, what's the big deal? It all comes to the same thing. But there's a classic rabbinic assumption that a slight variation between two phrases indicates that there are two separate meanings. Here, the difference between if and when seems pretty straightforward, and we can easily guess what the Kliakar will make of it. He says the language of when refers to something that is certain to happen. moreyoter alha vadaut. Whereas If refers to a case where there is some doubt, for it is unlikely and uncommon. Right, and that we know. There are some sins that are inevitable and some that are infrequent. Most people commit minor transgressions like gossip or rudeness. But murder, thank God, is pretty rare. that must be what our two categories of sin are referring to. But that's not exactly where the Kleokar takes it. Venerally, it seems to me, he says, that the way of the world is that everyone who sins unintentionally sins in things that he sees everyone else failing in and not careful about. So he makes the mistake of saying that there really is no sin in the matter. Okay, so the insight here is that we tend to sin in ways that we see being done all around us because they become normalized. And so they no longer seem to us to be sins. They can't be sins, we think, if everybody does them. We regard sins as private and shameful. So when they're done publicly and without shame, we simply transfer them into the category of acceptable behavior. And we know this type of sin, spreading rumors, telling little white lies but also think of the social influences in sins like racism or adultery, greed. So the category of inevitable sin is not reserved for minor transgressions. But then he goes on, and it's the second claim he makes that is just so interesting and unexpected. I've been thinking about it all week. A small minority of sins, he says, muta de muta, are the case of someone who sins even in something that he does not see others failing at, but he is unique in this matter. Hu yachid It's something that is uncommon, and his relationship to it is unusual. And this is the case of if a person sins. That is to say, the sinner will be one person, alone, and there will be no similar or related cases among all the other creatures. Lo yelo dimayon Mayon Bahaver Ben Habriot. Kliakar is suggesting here that there are some sins which are rare, not because of their severity, but because of their particular appeal to unique individuals. In fact, he suggests that there's a kind of sin that will be committed by one person and one person alone. What a thought! That someone could have their own personal sin. A product of their unique psychological makeup, their own hidden motives and desires. A sin that no one else has ever committed or will ever commit again. Now, this notion of the unique transgression may sound like a strange concept, but perhaps it's easier to formulate in its positive version. Here, for example, is Rabbi Shlomo Volbe, one of the 20th century's great teachers from the Musar movement, writing on the topic of uniqueness in a well-known passage from his book, Aleh Shur. He says, every person must know that they have importance. There never was a person like you, nor will there ever be a person like you throughout history. I, with my special character strengths, my particular parents born at a specific time period and in a certain environment, certainly there is a unique challenge that is placed upon me. I have a special share in the Torah and the entire world is waiting for me to actualize that which is incumbent upon me. For my role cannot be exchanged with anyone else in the world. Here we have an inspiring tribute to the power of embracing one's individuality and searching for the unique contribution one can bring to the world. The idea that every person has a special role to play in the grand scheme, one that no one else can fill, is tremendously empowering. And it's a message that one sees from time to time in spiritual literature. But what about the converse of that proposition? If everyone has their own unique potential for goodness, then perhaps everyone also has their own unique potential for destruction. Rabbi Volbe speaks of each person's unique challenge. So what happens when we fail to meet that challenge? What happens when we cause a harm in the world that no one else could have caused? A terrible damage, all our own. And what happens on one level, according to the Kliakar, is quite simple. We bring an offering. We do exactly what we do when we sin in the most common universal ways. There's a ritual, a process of atonement, and there is forgiveness. And so the Kleokar is inviting us to think about Leviticus in a totally different way than it may first appear. Not as an impersonal system of accounting spiritual debts and issuing standard intricate formulas for atonement and payback, but instead as an invitation to profound self-reflection and self-knowledge. But there's more to it than that. Many have noted that the word for these offerings in Hebrew, korban, doesn't mean sacrifice, but something more like coming close. So these offerings are a way of coming close to God and to the community after having felt a distance. That re-entry and reconciliation is necessary even when we sin in typical ways. But it is especially necessary when we confront those unique personal sins, those parts of ourselves we're sure that no one else will understand. And in that sense, the offering of a Korban is also about coming closer to oneself. So look in the mirror. Ask the question: what is my sin? Because it's really just another way of asking a more fundamental question. Who am I? And the book of Leviticus, it turns out, is very interested in the answer to that question. Best Book Ever was produced by Ben Cooley and edited by Vera Blossom. And our theme song is Pete by Hillel Tigay. You can listen to more of his beautiful music on iTunes and Spotify. And while you're there, why not subscribe to Best Book Ever if you haven't already? If you're interested in supporting this podcast and our work, you can visit us at ikar.org and donate or Venmo us at ecarla. That's I-K-A-R-L-A. Thanks a lot and see you next week.